Good morning, brothers and sisters. Christians often have a difficult time rightly interpreting prophetic language and prophetic imagery. We can read the prophecies, especially people like to read the ones from the book of Revelation, and it can be challenging at times to know exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying through this imagery, through the words of St. John, who wrote that book of the Bible. This morning we're given the prophet Isaiah when he prophesied long ago about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And he tells us certain things about Christ's coming. That he is just, he is faithful, and he will establish peace on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. He will establish peace. And what will this peace look like? He tells us, the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion shall browse together, and a little child will guide them. Together the young shall rest, the lion shall eat hay like the ox, the baby shall play by the cobra's den, and the child lay his hand on the adder's lair. There shall be no harm, no ruin, on my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. It's really a beautiful imagery. And we often think he's talking about heaven. After we die, by God's grace, we get to go to heaven. Heaven is like this. That means all of the animals in heaven that fight now on earth are gonna get along in heaven. Everybody's a vegetarian, basically, right? That, that's why well, they all eat hay. Even the lion eats hay now. Everybody's a vegetarian in heaven, and all the animals will get along. So we have this, this earthly view of heaven. This is not at all what the prophecy means. In this imagery that the Holy Spirit is giving through Isaiah, all of these different animals represent human beings, people. Whenever you hear either some type of relationship between the earth and itself, mountains and hills and valleys, or plants, the different kinds of trees and bushes, or animals, the word of God is always referring to us humans. It's always talking about us. And it's pointing out that as humans, there are different personality types, different roles in society, different responsibilities, and therefore our relationships one with another can be expressed through this imagery. Some humans are lions and bears. Some humans are lambs and children. Some humans are serpents, snakes. The lack of unity between humans is displeasing to God. It's not what he wants. He wants us all to get along, truly he does. He was willing to suffer such violent torture and death just to reconcile with us. And so in his kingdom, on his holy mountain, there is peace. Everybody gets along. No fighting. Now again, we assume this means in heaven after we die. That is not what the prophecy is referring to. He will establish this peace on earth. Well, where is it? 
right? You read the news. You look out in the world. Where's this peace? It's sitting here in this pew right now. Remember, these animals represent us. And on his holy mountain, meaning in the heavenly Jerusalem, his kingdom, which is, yes, in heaven after you die, but it's even here on earth within his church. God equalizes all those who come to him. So all of the people out in society who may have different types of authority, the lions who rule, the lambs who follow, when they come into his house, they all have to get along, and they all have to sit beside each other in the same pews. If you've ever been to like a really fancy cathedral in a big city, you'll sometimes see very powerful and wealthy men and women and politicians sitting beside the lowly and the poor at mass. We're all equal. We all come, and what's interesting here, when he feeds us with his body, he does it under the form of plants, bread and wine. In a sense, we're all vegetarians together. The church is the kingdom of God, is the heavenly Jerusalem, even here and now. And our Lord is seeking to unite all of his people, to change their confrontational and vicious habits, and to teach them all how to get along. And he does this, as Isaiah says, with the words of his mouth, with the truth. He shares the truth with them. And Jesus, we know, tells us that the truth sets us free. It's the truth that brings peace. You should never be surprised when you look out in the world and see conflict and war and hatred. It makes perfect sense. Lions eat lambs in the world, but not in Christ's kingdom. Only the establishment of the true faith in Jesus Christ can bring about peace in the world. Nothing else will accomplish this. Don't worry about politicians trying to seek peace between other nations. It'll never work. It can work temporarily for a few decades at most, but we'll always go back to war. Only Christ and his truth can establish real peace where the lion lays down with the lamb. Now John, according to our Lord, the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament, is giving us similar language in the gospel today. What did he call the Sadducees and Pharisees? A brood of vipers. He uses this prophetic language. You're a bunch of vicious serpents. Who warned you to come and repent? Now, I'm sure he's glad that they're repenting. Our Lord wants all those who may be vicious out in the world to come to him to repent of their sins and to stop being vicious. Stop attacking and consuming their enemies. So he tells them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance. Produce good fruit as evidence of your repentance. It is clear that in order to join the kingdom of heaven and to find the peace that Christ wants you to have, you first have to repent. 
That is required. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there's no peace. And there's no share in Christ's heavenly kingdom. So John was sent to prepare the people for repentance. That's what he's doing. Repent of your sins. The Messiah is coming. But he's going to give you a different kind of baptism. I'm just leading you to repentance. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We know that when we receive baptism by the hands of the church, we are filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit. God literally dwells in us. And it's God's inner dwelling that enables us to change, to grow in virtue, and to be at peace with one another. It's the Holy Spirit that turns the lion into a lamb, the serpent into a child. Now, as Catholics, once you've come to that grace, once you've been baptized, then you have to grow in those virtues. But you have all of the grace necessary through the freedom from sin and the light of the Holy Spirit, this spiritual, this internal light to your mind. You can now better understand the truth precisely because the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind. The saints and the fathers always describe this language of light for the mind because it helps us understand how it works. Think of light for your eyes. A healthy human eye has the natural ability to see real things around it, correct? Right? But unless there is light, the power of your eye is useless. If we put out the candles, turn off all the lights, and if the sun went out, even though you would have the power of sight, you couldn't see anything because you'd be in darkness. The power of sight is insufficient for seeing clearly. This is true in regards to every human mind. You have the power to know the truth. You have that power. God gave it to you. It is natural. But you cannot know the truth unless a light illuminates it for you. Because if your mind is in darkness, then you are blind to truth. The best that you can do is try to feel around and make a guess at what the thing is. This is why it's not good to be blind. It's not an ideal. The eyes were meant to see. The mind was meant to know the truth. But without the light of the Holy Spirit, you cannot know truths outside of this world. You cannot know spiritual truths. We are in darkness without the light of the Holy Spirit. If he is not dwelling in me, then that light is not illuminating the truth. If I don't know the truth, then the truth can't set me free, then I am a slave. I'm a slave to my sinful and broken nature. I'm a slave to the imperfections of that nature and how I interact with others. That's where wars and insurrections come from. You see, sin darkens the mind. It's one of the consequences of sin, of original sin. Our minds become darkened. They can no longer perceive truth. And so we're making the best decisions we can while being blind, spiritually speaking. Now, as Christians, again, once we receive the Holy Spirit, we can now see clearly by his grace. But what happens when I commit grave sin 
as a disciple of Christ. But the Holy Spirit cannot abide in a soul in the state of mortal sin. He has to leave. Now, if the Holy Spirit has left me because I've committed mortal sin, then I'm in darkness again. Now, I know what I need to do to receive the Holy Spirit. I need to go to confession, repent of my sins, do my penance, and then, as John the Baptist says, produce good fruit as evidence of my repentance. So do my best to change. God doesn't expect perfection. He expects that I try. But what is it like for a Christian who has, who I should say, had the Holy Spirit and the light of God to lose that light and return to darkness whenever they fall into a mortal sin? I'm sure most of you have experienced this. I certainly have. But I think it's important that we reflect upon this so that we better understand the temptations that happen when we are in grave sin. Remember, your mind is now in darkness because the Holy Spirit is no longer illuminating you. However, that does not mean you forget all of the truth that you learned when you had the light. You know you have to get back to confession. You know you have to say your prayers. You know you shouldn't give up, that you should just go and try again. You know all of these things. You know God loves you, but because you can't see it in your mind any longer, you begin to doubt. That's the first thing that happens when you fall into grave sin, mortal sin. You begin to doubt all of those truths that you could see more clearly when you had the Holy Spirit. And the longer you wait to go to confession, the stronger your doubts become until your doubts become so strong they convince you to no longer believe that God really loves you, that our Lord wants to forgive you, that you need to go to confession at all, that daily prayer is essential. Now your beliefs have changed. So when mortal sin comes to a Christian, first they begin to doubt because they're in darkness. When you can't see something that you could see before, you doubt whether it actually existed or not. It's normal. So if you don't rush back and have the Holy Spirit restored to your soul, those doubts grow and grow until you assent, you agree, you accept them as true. The moment you do that, it's going to be that much harder to repent and come back. It's already hard enough for a, a good Catholic to go to confession, right? It's ridiculously humbling to have to go before the priest, kneel down and confess your sins. The church did not make up this rule. The sacrament of reconciliation was established by Jesus Christ himself after he rose from the dead. He said to the apostles, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you hold bound are held bound. And the apostles handed that power down through ordination to every bishop and priest to the present day. I, as the minister of Christ, the priest, the shepherd of Christ in this parish, have the power of Jesus Christ to forgive sins in his name. Now, you don't actually have to go to confession for venial sins. You can, the saints recommend it, but it's not required because there's so many things you can do to receive the forgiveness of sins for what we call venial sins. You know, giving money to the poor forgives venial sins. Praying for the dead forgives venial sins. Any act of charity forgives venial sins. Another person praying that you be forgiven forgives venial sins. 
going to Holy Communion forgives venial sins, all of those things and many more. But we know that there is only one way to receive the Holy Spirit once he has been lost. And that is through the sacraments of the church. Since the sacrament of baptism bestowed the Holy Spirit upon you for the forgiveness of sins or with the forgiveness of sins. Then there is another sacrament established by Christ to restore the Holy Spirit once you've lost him. That's confession. That's reconciliation. So sure it is humbling, but it's required for mortal sin. We know this to be true. The church has always believed this. We see this historically from the first centuries. But again, it's humbling. But the longer you stay away from confession, the harder it gets to return. I like to think of confession like a blood transfusion, okay? In essence, it, it spiritually is. You've got bad blood and you need dialysis. If you don't get dialysis because your heart is not working properly, you're going to die. Now, Jesus' blood is awesome. It's like just great. He's, he's what, what do you call it? Um, the perfect donor. He's the perfect donor. He can give blood to anybody. So you come to confession and you offer to Christ through the priest your bad blood. And Christ says, don't worry about it. Here's my blood. It's great. It's going to take care of all of the problems. It's going to heal all of the wounds, make you healthy again. And so you leave having been cleaned, purified, sanctified, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling once more within you. Now what often happens because we are so weak is we fall back into sin. And we feel bad. Oh, I just went to confession like last week. Well, go again. You know, if you have a bad heart disease, you may have to do dialysis twice a week. You do what you need to do until you get stronger. Every disease is different. Every spiritual sickness is different. Some take more healthy remedies before you recover and gain sufficient strength to remain healthy. Our Lord will forgive you 70 times, seven times. Not literally, but figuratively, as many as are required. As often as you're willing to repent, he will forgive. And yes, you should not want to offend him over and over again. But he loves you so much, he doesn't care. As long as you continually repent, he will continually forgive. That's difficult for us to accept as Christians because we don't love like that. And so when we are in sin, what happens? We doubt that even God loves like that. But that's a mistake. He loves us because he is love. That's all he knows what to do. He can't not love you. He even loves the damned and the demons in hell. He loves them. Now, they can't receive his love and they don't love him back, but he loves them because he is God. There is nothing, nothing you can do to stop him from loving you, literally. There are things you can do to stop you from going to heaven, but 
He will always love you. And as long as you have breath in your life in this world, you have time to repent. You have time to repent. And Advent, like Lent, is a great time of repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord, as John teaches us to make straight the highway for our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.